Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The Cuban political system has now outlasted the Soviet Union by 30 years, defying predictions of collapse in the 1990s. But the long-anticipated retirement of Raul Castro means that the revolutionary generation no longer holds sway in Havana. Recent protests have once again raised questions about the political future of Cuba in a world that remains largely inhospitable. Our guest today for a conversation about Cuban politics since the revolution of 1959 is historian Antoni Capcha. He's the author of several books on Cuban history, including A Short History of Revolutionary Cuba and Leadership in the Cuban Revolution. What was the political character of the 26th July movement during the struggle against Batista and what particular roles did Fidel Castro and Raul Castro play in its leadership? The interesting thing about the character of the movement itself is that it changed quite significantly over the three years of its formal existence and the five years that it, in a movement of any sort it developed. It became more radical. If you compare it in 1953, 54, 55, when it was set up, to what emerged in late 1958, it had changed a lot. But essentially, the aim was still always to remove Batista, but then, and that's the crucial distinction from other groups, to achieve the long overdue process of nation building, which most Cubans recognized had been promised in 1902 when Cuba got independence, but which had never arrived, mostly because of the close relationship with the United States. And there was a degree of consensus within the movement that what that meant, that long-awaited overhaul of the system, what it meant was a radical overhaul via some form of socialism, because what it emphasized, what the programs always emphasized was inequality, vast inequality of Cuba before 1958, dependence on the USA, although interestingly that didn't appear in the first manifesto at all. Corruption was another issue that was quite dominant in politics and just generally underdevelopment and backwardness. And mostly that was achieved to be achieved by some form of socialism although not all agreed with that. So that was the distinction that eventually emerged within the movement. So it was a very mixed, very amorphous movement. But by late 1958, it had a greater consensus than at the start, and it was much more radical than had originally been intended by many of the people that joined the movement. As for the role of Fidel and Raúl, Fidel's role was crucial, you have to say that all the time, even though I spend much of my time academically in saying, let's just please ignore Fidel because we are obsessed by him. You cannot say anything other than he was crucial to this particular development, not least because he articulated the ideas and the plans of the movement better than anybody, and certainly publicly. He was very skilled at publicity right from the start. He was politically astute, much more so than any other leader. He commanded loyalty. That's a crucial element for the uh, remarkable loyalty of the original group throughout the years that followed, the decades that followed. He commanded loyalty partly through his character, but also 
through the fact that he survived all the defeats, all the setbacks, and that gave him a kind of mythical status, even within the crew. So it was crucial as a leader. He also, of course, outlined the, the original program, which was the famous La Historia Me Absolverá, History Will Absolve Me, defense speech, which then became a text, somewhat different from the speech itself, but nonetheless making the same arguments. And the program that was outlined there was remarkably similar to the reforms that were actually passed in 1959-60. There, there was a blueprint, and it was that text. If you look at what was proposed very specifically in that document, most of the early reforms followed that quite closely. So in that sense, he was significant. Raúl was less significant. He was simply one of the captains, not commandantes, when the uh, Granma landing took place. But by late 1958, when he was given charge of the Second Front in another Sierra in the east of Cuba, the Sierra del Cristal, uh, that's when he came into his own and became much more significant in that particular area, and he staked his claim to leadership. The, interestingly, the one who really did influence, along with Fidel, was Che Guevara, of course. And he was crucial in that those three to five years because he shared the ideology that Fidel and Raul were beginning to develop, quite clear. But his sense of ideology, his awareness of Mountism, was much stronger and already he was moving towards more unusual and orthodox versions of Marxism. He also realized the importance of political education of the guerrillas, and so he was one who led that, and therefore substantially responsible for the radicalization process. The difference between Raul and Che on one hand, and Fidel on the other, was that they were more enthusiastic, or at least pragmatic about the need to collaborate with the Communist Party, the PSP. Fidel was less, in, less sure about it until the very end, when the PSP changed its approach. What relationship did the 26th July movement have overall with the pro-Soviet Communist Party in Cuba, the PSP? The PSP changed their tune, having opposed, criticised the rebellion early on, 1953, the Moncada attack, 1956, the Granma landing, and the whole Sierra strategy, they were highly critical of it until mid-1958, when under pressure from their youth wing principally, they shifted their policy and came on board. And by January 1959, they were the only one, only party beyond the movement, which was saying, we will support you unconditionally. All the other parties were imposing conditions. We want this, we want that. They played a clever move. They said, we will support you unconditionally. And our several thousand, the numbers are not clear, but possibly up to 10,000 members and sympathizers are ready to be your foot soldiers if you need them. Highly disciplined, very politically aware. And so that was a significant resource for the revolution. And of course, the PSP gave them links to the Soviet Union, which would be useful. At first, US public opinion didn't know what to make of Fidel Castro and his revolution. 
In January 1959, Castro faced a panel of journalists on the CBS programme Face the Nation. He criticised the support of the US government for Batista. Dr Castro, could you tell us what your opinion is of United States policy during this period of your revolution? Well, well, do you want I tell you the truth? That's all we want. <laughs> I know. I, I sympathize with the people of the United States. Not us, because I want to, to win the people now. But really and sincerely, I think people of the United States will people, newsmen of the United States, you have known many during the war and after the war. And I have a wonderful opinion of all you. And about government of the United States, I think they were mistakes about Cuba and about United and the other countries of America. They armed dictator, believing it was a good political, because they didn't think what kind of people are those people of Latin America. What I think is the United States have been not worried at all about our feeling, our democratic feeling. United States speaking about democracy and forgetting the feeling, democratic feeling of those countries of Latin America, okay. and between them Cuba. Do you see those chairman tanks? Do you see those airplanes? Do you see those big bonds of 500 pounds? They were sold by government to Batista. And Batista was always telling to the soldier, to his soldier, United States is with us. United States is uh, helping us. United States giving arms to us, you know. Also in January of that year, the executions of Batista government officials attracted the interest of the US media. Outside Havana's presidential palace, hundreds of thousands rally at the call of revolutionary leader Fidel Castro, who estimated their number at a million. Most of the throng wears the colors of Castro's 26th of July movement. They are in an exultant mood as the man who overthrew the Batista dictatorship calls on them to approve the public trials and executions of pro-Batista figures guilty of war crimes and atrocities. The executions, some 250 to date, have been widely criticized by many as too hasty and summary, even if justified. Says Castro, the Cuban revolutionary government has no reason to offer explanations to America or to anyone except the people of Cuba. Six months later, the newsreels reported on a power struggle between Fidel Castro and Cuba's first post-revolutionary president, Manuel Urrutia. Fidel Castro, with flamboyant drama, demonstrates his unchallenged power over Cuba's masses. He announces his resignation as premier, and the response is explosive. Walkouts from Havana shops and factories, and mass demonstrations by workers and university students, calling on Castro not to resign hailing Castro, the maximum leader of the revolution. President Manuel Urrutia, shown just after the revolution when Castro installed him as provisional president, then one of the heroes of the people, was ousted to be replaced as president by Osvaldo Gorticos Torado, former minister of revolutionary laws. But it is certain that whoever may be president or premier, Fidel Castro is number one man in Cuba. In an emotional four-hour broadcast that evening, he accused former President Urrutia of near treason, toppling him from the role of hero to one threatened with mob violence. Fidel Castro's dramatic show of strength makes it clear that after six and a half months, he is still riding high, 
on a wave of turbulent mass emotion. What were the key events after the revolution that led to Cuba's alignment with the Soviet Union by the early 1960s? It's not so much events, actually, as processes and pressures. One example of that is that the existing political currents in Cuba accepted some kind of socialism. That's why I defined the movement as having some sort of consensus on something called socialism. What I mean by that is if you look at the 1940 constitution, which remains symbolically important, mostly because it was never fully enacted, but the text of the constitution really does fuse a kind of radical nationalism with clearly socialist approaches. So the the currents of socialism, not just in the PSP, were there already. The question was, what kind of socialism would it be? In the end, I would say that the choice of the socialism that they developed was shaped by a number of things. The most obvious to start with was the experience in the Sierra. That refers to some extent, as I said, with the influence of Che Guevara and Raul Castro, but also it was just simply the process of shared struggle. There are any number of examples in history of strikes and revolutionary struggle changing the thinking of those who take part in it, and particularly those who are actually doing the fighting, and this is one clear case. So the Sierra group, the Ejército Rebelde, the rebel army up in the Sierra, would became much more radicalized than the urban movement did because they had not gone through precisely the same shared struggle. So that was the first factor that shifted them. The second was, of course, basically the U.S. hostility from very early on. Early on, it was, of course, initially it was confusion, uncertainty, fear. But by May 1959, they were openly opposing the land reform, the agrarian reform. And that fed into the nationalism that was inherent in the rebel movement. And I say nationalism, but of course, one thing you have to understand, I think, when you're looking at Cuba, is that Cuba was not that different in some respects from many other parts of Latin America at the time, where in the 20th century, particularly the early 20s, for example, when nationalist movements developed in Argentina, in Bolivia, for example, and lots of other places, not just Cuba, they tended to focus on the United States and to particular to focus on the United States as an imperialist power. So nationalism often became a kind of radical left-wing nationalism, focusing on the evils of capitalism, the need to abolish capitalism, and particularly an anti-imperialism. So that was the nature of the movement, and it was very clearly fueled, that nationalism was fueled further by US opposition. It wasn't the sole factor that pushed them towards the Soviet Union and towards communism, but it was a, it was a significant one. And I think there's another element which gets often overlooked in studies of the revolution. It is the role of sugar. Cuba had been locked into sugar the export of sugar, and principally for the U.S. market, certainly by the mid-19th century. 
And they did so when they locked into sugar and locked into the United States. Cuba was a key producer of a, a product that was much needed in the North, in Europe and in the United States. By the 1950s, that had changed. And sugar producers were really struggling to get into an oversupplied market, which meant that the consuming countries, principally the rich North, determined the terms of the relationship. So that you found by the 1950s that every producing sugar producing and sugar dependent country had to find some sort of very close and costly relationship with one single market. Typically, that was Britain or France or the United States. Now, the problem by the 1950s is that if you were going to diversify or sell your sugar anywhere else outside the United States, there was only one place, one market large enough to accommodate that need. And that was the Soviet market, who could not produce enough sugar for their consumption. So it was a marriage of very great convenience to both sides, let alone the ideological affinity. And it's something that's overlooked, I think. By 1961, the US government had decided to oust Fidel Castro, but the Bay of Pigs invasion proved to be a very public humiliation for the new president, John F. Kennedy. The following news report gives some credence to US denials of involvement. Few other people did. Cuban revolutionary troops such as these have invaded Castro's leftist island fortress, reportedly rallied by a mysterious coded radio message. Alert, alert, look well at the rainbow. The fish will be running very soon. From the sea and by parachute, the rebels have struck along the coast within 90 miles of Havana. Initial accounts of the fighting sketchy, but strafing and bombing of communications and military targets reported with heavy casualties. Fidel's grip is threatened as word of some defections comes out. But the fiery bearded Castro is hardly short on words as he attacks what he calls United States imperialism and calls on sister Latin American republics to aid Cuba. Impounded in Miami, one of the three B-26s which bombed Cuban bases before the invasion. They're of a type purchased by Cuba from the U.S. during Batista's regime. The Cuban bomber pilot, concealing his identity, says he had planned his defection flight for three months. Meanwhile in Havana, acting Foreign Minister Olivares shows foreign envoys and newsmen scorched fragments of what may have been rockets fired during the B-26 raids. As might be expected, he points an accusing finger at the U.S. The same line is followed at a dramatic meeting of the United Nations General Assembly's political committee by Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roa, charging his nation has been invaded by what he terms mercenaries from Guatemala and Florida. Quickly, forcefully, the charges are denied by Chief U.S. Delegate Adley E. Stevenson. These charges are totally false, and I deny them categorically. In the wake of the failed invasion, Castro drew closer to the Soviet Union and agreed to host Soviet nuclear missiles on Cuban soil. The ensuing crisis brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. The United States' answer to what Adlai Stevenson termed Soviet blackmail in Cuba was a quarantine of all offensive weapons being shipped from Russia to that island fortress. The U.S. threw up a steel fence prepared to stop any vessel carrying materials of war. In Cuba itself, 100,000 men were put under emergency orders as they had been during past invasion scares. The waterfront in Havana and along other parts of the coast bristled with gun emplacements as the Cuban regime waited to see what their bosses in the Kremlin were to do. 
Cuba became the focus of world attention. Here centered the most critical threat of global war since the surrender of Germany 17 years ago. Castro has put every able-bodied man through military training. He has even armed some as young as 12 years of age, and authorities assemble thousands in cities and villages for patriotic rallies. As in the past, these rallies are designed to whip up hate of what Castro calls Yankee imperialistic warmongers. Through suggestions that a UN team inspect missile sites, Castro said that they had better come ready for combat. He went on to call President Kennedy a pirate for setting up the quarantine. You may have noticed the newsreel commentator referring to Castro's bosses in the Kremlin. In fact, one legacy of the missile crisis was greater distrust between Cuba and the Soviet leaders. However, Castro and Nikita Khrushchev put on a show of unity when he paid a visit to Moscow the following year, as Pate News reported. Russians turned out in thousands to show the world, and America in particular, that Nikki loves Fidel. President Castro had the red carpet treatment all the way to the Red Square. Over the course of the 1960s, relations between Havana and Moscow became increasingly fraught, and many observers thought that there might be a break towards the end of that decade. What were the factors behind that tension, and why did the break not materialise in the end? The relationship was never easy. There was a degree of enthusiasm at times, and early on particularly, but only much later was there any substantial enthusiasm for the relationship. Early on, the rebels, partly because of the history of the PSP and those criticisms that were made, the rebels had treated the PSP with some degree of suspicion and even antagonism. And there were some within the movement and certainly within the allied guerrilla group, the Directorio Estudiantil Revolucionario, the Revolutionary Directorate, were anti-communist, quite clearly. So the suspicion was there. And that also was suspicion because it was partly because in the 19, late 30s, early 40s, the Communist Party renamed itself the PSP eventually, and they did so as a result of an electoral alliance with Batista. Now, admittedly, it was a different Batista in a sense. It was Batista the Populist, and in their search for a popular front following the Moscow line, the Communist Party went into an, an alliance. Now, that was something that they had to live down later. It made political sense, but nonetheless, given what happened with under Batista in later, his later incarnation, it was a problem. And the rebels were always suspicious, suspicious of the Stalinism of the party that they perceived suspicious of that link with Batista. There was also a generational suspicion as well, because the Communist Party had been created in the 1920s, and many of those original leaders were still there, or were leaders of the, say, 1930s, 40s were still there. It made them a much older and more staid movement than the most of the rebels perceived themselves to be. So the basis of the relationship was not good. But when the PSP said, came on board and said, listen, we will support you unconditionally, that won many of the rebels over. But the behavior of the PSP in the first two or three years didn't do a great deal to help the relationship. And 
the tensions emerged fully in 1962 when one of the leaders of the PSP, Aníbal Escalante, who had come on board pragmatically. He actually was one of those members of the PSP who considered that the revolution in Cuba could not be socialist because Cuba wasn't ready for socialism. So his view was tactical rather than anything else. But he made a clear attempt. He was given charge of putting together the three revolutionary groups into one alliance and made a clear move to influence the direction and the decision-making within the new united movement. That became a public scandal. And interestingly, not only was he removed and packed off to Eastern Europe to a diplomatic post, but also the PSP members within the alliance and the PSP unit within the alliance were relegated in their access to decision-making. They were not in charge. It was quite clear that it was the rebel group, and particularly the rebel army, the Sierra group, who were in charge. Now, that's a long explanation, but it does explain why the tensions were there locally. And those played out, to some extent, also in the relationship with the Soviet Union. Because in the same way that the PSP believed and argued that Cuba wasn't ready for socialism, so too did the Soviet Union. It was highly suspicious of Cuba's unorthodox approach, the Cuban leadership's unorthodox approach to what was needed. In particular, neither Moscow nor the PSP liked Che Guevara's economic ideas. They thought they were somewhat chaotic, they thought they were inappropriate, and they thought that the economic pattern that should be followed was a mixed economy along the lines to some extent of Lenin's new economic policy way back in the 1920s. So their opposition was known. They also completely disagreed with Guevara's ideas, of course, of the what he called the subjective conditions for socialism. His view was, in a nutshell, to say, look, if the objective conditions for socialism do not exist in Cuba, let's accept that as a possibility, they can be overcome by subjective conditions, meaning the action of revolutionaries, dedicated revolutionaries, like the 26th of July, and also by conciencia, consciousness. He actually was already, by 1962, a disciple of Gramsci and was bringing a new perspective into his interpretation of what should happen of Cuba's path towards socialism, but also path rapidly towards communism. Now, all of that was rejected by both Moscow and the PSP, as indeed was, of course, the other side, the other aspect of the Cuban leadership's policies of that time, the whole insurrectionary policy in Latin America. And that started in 1959. In 1959, there were already attempts to help revolutionaries in neighboring countries. And that became a much more conscious policy in 1961 and especially 1962. And so from 62 to 1968, relations between Moscow and Havana were really strained and not helped by the fact that Moscow refused to let Cuba into the Comic-Con trading bloc, the socialist bloc, 
And that was something that the, the leadership in Havana really resented because they saw that as a path to development. The reason they were kept out was because Moscow believed that the whole running of the economy was chaotic and therefore it was going to destabilize Comic-Con and make uh, create a very vulnerable economy within the organization. The reason why it didn't, re the relationship didn't break, however, in spite of the fact that Cuba was constantly challenging Moscow's argument about peaceful coexistence throughout the 1960s, the reason it didn't collapse is that at that stage, the USSR needed Cuba as much as Cuba needed the USSR. And what I'm referring to particularly was that initially, the as Cuba moved towards a socialist and then communist definition, the Moscow leadership tended to see Cuba as a possible ally in their arguments with China, and particularly in the third world. They were worried about China's influence in the third world making their own influence less. And so if they could win Cuba over, then that would be helpful. And that produced in 1966 the Tricontinental Conference, which was designed initially to win over anti-colonial movements throughout the developing world, throughout, of course, what was called then the Third World, to win them over to the Moscow Line. It failed miserably because the line that won that argument at the Tricontinental was the Cuban Line of anti-imperialist activity and revolution, which was therefore completely challenging Moscow's line of peaceful coexistence with the United States. But the USSR had no choice but to keep on supporting Cuba economically, but at a very, in a very minimalist way, as I said, without letting them into Comic-Con, because they needed Cuba to survive for their own credibility. There was a perception in the 1970s and 80s that Cuba had become a fairly orthodox member of the Soviet-led bloc following its political and economic model. Would you say that perception was justified? I think it was partially justified because it's true that for about 10 years, I date it not from 1970, which is what many of the books do, but from 1975, but what was called institutionalization between 75 and 85, 86, was certainly some to some extent based on Soviet and socialist bloc patterns. If you look at the electoral structure that was created in 1976, People's Power, that really did follow very much the principles and the structures of the Soviet system. If you look at the, the nature of the Communist Party, to some extent, even the leadership of the Communist Party, because the PSB were back in, uh, in favour, but certainly the size of the party, which had been very, very small when it was created in 1965. But in 1975, after that first Congress, it began to grow and look a little bit more like an Eastern European model. And if you look at the Constitution of 1976, it was very, very closely following the patterns of the Soviet Constitution of the time of the, from the 1950s. And also, the, the Cuban leadership stopped criticising the Soviet policies in the Third World. And at one stage, famously, at one non-aligned conference in Algiers, 
described the Soviet Union as the natural ally of the third world, which is something of a shock to many people who had seen Cuba's policies in the years before that as much more revolutionary. Also, the shift in the economy when they, they abandoned Guevara's ideas, or at least an interpretation of Guevara's ideas, and began to move towards a slightly more decentralized economy, which reflected some of the principles of what was called market socialism in the socialist bloc. That seemed also to create the impression that Cuba was following Soviet patterns. There's another factor that made it quite, as to use the term is sometimes used, Sovietized, was that around that time, and particularly in the 1980s, a generation, or more than one generation, of young Cubans were sent to the socialist bloc and to the Soviet Union to study in universities. Many of the PhDs, if not all of the PhDs at one stage, were earned in the socialist bloc and Soviet universities. And that influenced those who undertook those studies there. Many of them came back with Soviet thinking, with Soviet textbooks, with Soviet ideas of what socialism should be. That clashed with a little bit with the slightly older generation of the former rebels, but nonetheless, it was there. Having said that, there's always a caveat with Cuba. The, the first caveat is that many of the structures that reflected the night that grew up and reflected the nature of the 1960s simply did not disappear. The most obvious one is the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution, which I think is easily the most characteristic of all the mass organizations that were created. Those CDRs did not disappear. They coexisted with the new electoral system uncomfortably, but nonetheless, they coexisted. And one of the patterns of the way in which Cuba has developed over the whole six decades is that often, very confusingly, when a new system has come up, it hasn't necessarily replaced what was there before. It's sometimes either grown on the system or lived alongside it. And that is one example there. Another example is, anyway, the mass organizations. They often get overlooked in explanations of the revolution's development and survival, but they were absolutely vital. And most of them were created in 1960 or 61, which actually predated any of the versions of the single party that grew up. And they were fundamental. CDRs is one. The Women's Federation is another. There were two or three others that were there already, but given a new radical form. So in a sense, the 1960s were still there in those organizations and in those patterns. Also, when you look at the Communist Party that was created, that was created in 1965 and was reshaped slightly in the first Congress in 1975, you can see that it was still absolutely dominated by the former rebels, what were called new communists the people in the July the 26th movement and the directory. And I think another caveat is that you should not forget that one of the constant patterns of the whole revolutionary trajectory from 1959 has been the continual debates going on internally, often over the definition of socialism, not just the path for revolution and the path for the economy, 
but actually ideologically about the definition of revolution. They were there in 1959. Actually, they're still there now. So those debates did not disappear. And that's one reason why I date the institutionalization from 1975. And that's because the crisis of the 10 million ton harvest, which is often attributed, is often given the um, seen as the catalyst for the shift towards institutionalization when it failed. But the uh, what followed that collapse, that, that harvest, and the economic crisis that it showed was a five-year period of intense debate about what went wrong, how do we go about this, how do we change things, was it the right strategy but the wrong scale, and so on. And that debate took five years, and we know that because it took five years to set up the first Congress. And when that first Congress came, you knew there was consensus. That's one of the big clues in Cuba as to what is, is there a debate going on? Well, look at the scheduling of the Congresses, the party Congresses, because you don't hold a Congress until there's consensus. And there was no consensus. So the debate was going on and it carried on under the surface, even in those 10 years of institutionalization. And there's one other point I would make that shows that it wasn't just Sovietization, and that is the involvement in Angola in 1975. Right at the start of the institutionalization phase, the decision to get involved in Angola was, we now know fully, was the Cuban decision. It went against Soviet interests. The Soviet Union's policies towards Angola were not the same as Cuba's, and it was the Cubans who really pretty much forced the Soviet hand, forcing them into providing the material, providing the transport for the involvement. And that clearly does argue against Sovietization. The following clip comes from a BBC documentary on the history of Cuba's role in African politics. It covers the celebrated moment in 1988 when Fidel Castro sent a huge military force to beat back the South African invasion of Angola. It changed the course of history in Southern Africa. The clip includes interviews with US government officials from the Reagan administration and the South African Defence Minister Magnus Milan. The Angolan troops and their Soviet advisers were routed at the Lomba River. The Soviets left behind a litter of burnt-out vehicles and discarded equipment. Over 2,000 Angolans died in this battle alone. To make matters worse, part of the army was encircled. The Cubans could not stand by and watch their allies being crushed. They felt, I guess, that they had to listen to the Soviets when it came to military advice until the Lamba River fiasco and, and uh, the initiative of Fidel Castro coming forward and saying, Soviets don't know how to fight in African wars. We do. As in 1975, the decision to send additional Cuban troops was not discussed with Moscow. In November of 1987, the Russian-Cuban relations were more tense than ever. The rise of Mikhail Gorbachev to power had visibly changed Soviet priorities regarding the Third World. It became more and more apparent to us that there were serious problems between the Cubans and the Russians. They feared Gorbachev and Reagan's coming to agreement. The Russians, for their part, uh, began to, because they couldn't afford it, 
cut back on the level of subsidy to Cuba, thus giving the Cubans even less reason to be beholden to them. And Angola, in this context, became even more important to the Cubans, even as the Russians came to see it as an embarrassment and an obstacle to better relations with the United States. It was that point that the Cubans made the decision to basically double the forces they had in Angola. Basically, if you wanted to find out how many Cubans there are, you start counting baseball diamonds from satellites, and we could, we could, we could look down. <laughs> Cuban army regulations required a baseball field for every certain number of troops. So when they built a baseball field, a new one, you knew there was an addition of troops. When they closed a baseball field, you knew some had left. Massive Cuban reinforcements were flown in to rescue the trapped MPLA forces. The final confrontation between the Cuban, Angolan and South African armies took place around the tiny village of Cuito Cuanaval. Now, do you see this type of air traffic? You've got to think. You've got to say, what the hell is going on? They started hating us. We knew where the operation headquarters were. We knew where the anti-aircraft and the artillery, and we opened fire. The whole effort was conducted by uh, Fidel Castro, by telephone from Havana. <laughs> he was a commanding officer. How you can do a thing like that, I wouldn't know. The battle raged on, costing an estimated 25,000 lives. All sides claimed victory without managing to stop the war. The combat at Cuito Cuanaval lasted six months and became Africa's largest battle since World War II. When Nelson Mandela went to Havana after his release from prison, he described the Battle of Quito Cuanaval as a landmark in the struggle against white supremacy. On a visit to the US in the early 90s, Mandela made no apology for his alliance with Cuba. Welcome to America, Mr. Mandela. I'm Ken Edelman. Those of us who share your struggle for human rights and against apartheid have been somewhat disappointed by the models of human rights that you have held up since being released in jail. You've met over the last six months three times with Yasser Arafat, who you have praised. You have told Gaddafi that you share the view on, and applaud him on his record of human rights and his drive for freedom and peace around the world. And you have praised Fidel Castro as a leader of human rights and said that Cuba was one of the countries that's head and shoulders above all other countries in human rights, despite the fact that documents of the United Nations and elsewhere show that Cuba is one of the worst. I was just wondering, are these your models of leaders of human rights? And if so, would you want a Gaddafi or an Arafat or a Castro to be a future president of South Africa? One of the mistakes which some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies. That we can 
and we will never do. We have our own struggle which we are conducting. We are grateful to the world for supporting our struggle. But nevertheless, we are an independent organization with its own policy. And the attitude of every country towards our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle. Mandela's questioner, Kenneth Edelman, is best remembered today for predicting that the invasion of Iraq would be a cakewalk. After Fidel Castro's death, Mandela's old comrade, Mac Maharaj, wrote a column for the New York Times which described the Cuban leader as a South African hero. What positions did Fidel and Raul Castro take on the question of relations with the Soviet Union and the version of socialism that Cuba should adopt? Was there a difference in outlook between them? There was a difference in outlook, uh, but it's largely a difference of um, means rather than ends. Raul was always much more instinctively closer to the Soviet model. He was he had joined the Young Communist, Juventud Comunista, briefly, very briefly in 1953. When he joined the rebellion, he immediately left the movement because they were taking a different line. But instinctively, he was closer to Marxism much earlier than Fidel was. And he saw the Soviet Union as something of a model for efficiency and certainly effectiveness. He also, despite being highly critical of what he saw in Eastern Europe and saw in the Soviet Union in terms of corruption and privilege, he nonetheless believed that much more than Fidel did, that a a communist party properly run and properly meeting on schedule with proper accountability could be a guarantee of a much more accountable system. So his belief in systems and his belief in structures was what led him to an admiration of the uh, Soviet Union. He was particularly close to the Soviet military and appreciated the organization and the sufficiency which they brought to um, events. So instinctively, he was more in favor of that link and certainly was a conduit in the early 60s for the discussions with Moscow. However, having said that, he wasn't totally opposed to Fidel's approach. The way I describe it and have described it in the past is that the means in which they, which they adopted to arrive at the project which they shared was that Fidel always preferred what I call passionate mobilization, namely ideological commitment and mobilizing as much as possible, the characteristic of the 60s. And uh, Raul always preferred formal structural accountability because that delivered the goods. I described it as one feeding the soul and the other feeding the body. But Raul was a pragmatist and he recognized that you needed that level of ideological commitment and mobilization at a certain stage, not least in the 60s, when you, the nature of the economy, given the embargo and so on, you could not actually deliver material goods properly. And so the 1970s institutionalization came at the right time. And it was to some extent, uh, the reforms of the 1970s were to some extent approved by Raul. They weren't his ideas necessarily, but he certainly gave them the stamp of approval 
And he was therefore associated from then on with the idea of economic reform. So there was a difference, but it wasn't a substantial difference. As I said, means rather than ends, but they both still shared the same goal of nation building through some form of socialism. Several years before the demise of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, the Cuban leadership had already announced a policy shift in the mid-1980s. What was the nature of that shift? It was what was called rectification. The terminology, which does not set the pulse racing, the rectification of past errors and negative tendencies, all with capital letters, gives something of a clue. Past errors were the errors made during institutionalisation, and the negative tendencies were the very orthodox views that drove some of those policy decisions and also that created a communist party that was beginning by 1985 to look a bit like Eastern European communist parties, namely very bureaucratic and something of a vehicle for individual privilege, individual acquisition. So it was in a sense, often seen as going back to the 1960s. But it wasn't that simple because it arose from an awareness of, I would think, three things particularly. The first was that they were aware that Comic-Con was in crisis and could easily collapse. That turned out to be very true. But Raul in particular was aware that Cuba needed to prepare for a world without Comic-Con in case it did collapse. So that meant some kind of streamlining, some kind of economic streamlining. The second awareness was the the awareness of the threat from Gorbachev. Gorbachev, by 1986-87, was making it clear that Cuba was expendable, that in order to achieve agreement with Reagan in the United States, then he could quite willingly drop Cuba and eventually would do so if Cuba didn't change its policies. So they had to prepare for that. In 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev paid a visit to Havana. This rendition of the Soviet national anthem by a Cuban military band might as well have been a final requiem for the Soviet-Cuban alliance. underlying cause of it, however, was the negative effects of the reforms and institutionalization, which had changed the nature of the party, had changed the reason for the party. People joined the party, like in Eastern Europe, sometimes because of what would bring them, rather than out of ideological commitment. And that went completely against what both Fidel and Raul agreed with. So it saw something of a revival of Che Guevara's ideas. Certainly his, his uh, writings began to be much more publicly available as a result of this shift, and that it leads people to think that it went back to the 60s. It did, in some senses, in spirit, but it didn't in terms of the policies. They were actually looking for some 
degree of preparation for the crisis that they felt was coming. How did the Cuban leadership respond to the collapse of the Eastern Bloc in the early 1990s? And why was Cuba able to defy the predictions at the time that its system would soon experience the same fate? Interesting set of questions. The immediate response was shock and horror and the realisation that this was far worse than any crisis they had expected. The people of Cuba are living in a crisis, a special period. It's referred throughout the land as Periodo Especial. The following clip comes from a documentary on a visit to Cuba by a U.S. church group in 1993. The people here have been living through this new crisis with shortages of food, medicine, clothing, and most importantly, oil, or transportation and generation of electricity. The shortages are the consequence of a combination of the United States' economic blockade against the island nation and the collapse of the Eastern Bloc nations. Cuban pastor Elmer Labastida says the people are growing weary of the shortages. That's what the embargo does. It makes people just sick of being without the things that they need. For the simple things, oil for your kitchen, kerosene for your stove, uh, buses to get to your work and to your school or to your church. Simple things. The U.S.-led economic blockade has been in effect since 1963. It prohibits relations between any institution, business, or citizen of the United States and Cuba, initially imposed under the Trading with the Enemy Act. In the fall of 1992, economic pressures against Cuba were increased under provisions of a new bill, the Cuban Democracy Act, sponsored by U.S. Representative Robert Torricelli of New Jersey. The Torricelli bill provides that any ship docking in the United States can be seized if it's docked in Cuba during the previous six months. It imposes sanctions against countries which provide assistance to Cuba and prohibits trade with Cuba by U.S. subsidiaries established in foreign countries. The tough new trade restrictions were quickly condemned by a General Assembly vote in the United Nations, a vote described in a Los Angeles Times story as a stinging rebuke for the U.S. I was describe it as the Armageddon scenario because that's what it felt like. And we know that in a way because very, very quickly, Within by 1991, the party congress that met on time, and that tells you something, there was a rapid consensus on a whole program of unprecedented economic reforms. And that was driven very largely by Raul. Raul wanted to pick up on the reforms of the 1970s, but this time in a different context. Those reforms were vital. They meant, for example, what's called the dollarization of the economy, or uh, that's the wrong term in Cuban views. They talk about the decriminalization of the holding of the dollar. In other words, to allow the dollar to come in. And that allowed remittances, that allowed people to earn dollars one way or another. Uh, Self-employment was the other one that came in. They had abolished self-employment outside agriculture in 1968 as almost the most typical, most characteristic policy element of the 1960s. It proved a disaster um, and they now restored it, but that's all they restored in terms of breaking up the state system because it wasn't a shift towards private enterprise as one might have expected and as some hoped because it was small scale, it was self-employment, And even when they broke up the state farms at the same time, 
they broke them up into cooperatives and not distributing land to individuals. So it was a very limited reform, but enough to generate recovery. The economy started to grow again, having collapsed by some 35% in the previous four to five years. And that meant also a collapse, sorry, a recovery from the crisis, which was evident in 1994. It is interesting, given the current protests, to remember that 1994 protests were even greater and far more worrying for the system because it looked as though the system was about to collapse. But the protests came to nothing other than emigration, mass emigration, and the economy and the political system started to recover. Interestingly, though, what followed that was a debate. I come back to debate again. The first debate was quickly in 1989-91. How do we save the revolution? Well, in a way, they had saved it when the economy recovered. But the next question and the next debate was, okay, we've saved the revolution, but what have we saved? What is the revolution? What do we mean by it so that we know what to go on maintaining and saving? And that debate was a very open debate, very much so. You could see it in magazines, you could see it in the newspaper, criticisms and so on. What emerged by about the early 2000s was that it was an updated version of 1959 to 61. It was the model that was beginning to be put into effect in Cuba by about mid-1961. In other words, before the Cold War came into the picture and reshaped it in a particular way. Now, what that actually meant, and this was the bigger response, was to re-emphasize patria, fatherland, homeland, and nation. Now, those principles, ideas, had never been forgotten, but they were overshadowed by the Soviet bloc and the socialist bloc models. To some extent, they had disappeared. They now came back with a with a force to go back to the original model of nation building via socialism. So the one response really was, in the end, to say, we're going back to what we started doing, but, and this is Raoul speaking, updating how to do it. Beyond that, of course, there are any number of factors why it defied all the predictions of collapse. I Go back to the mass organizations as one very, very crucial element. The Soviet system worked in so many ways, but collapsed so quickly that it told a story of a weakness institutionally and particularly in involving people. That wasn't the case in Cuba. One of the elements absolutely characteristic of the Cuban system was the level and scale of participation through the mass organizations. Those mass organizations were now called upon in the early 90s, even before the recovery, to rebuild the state because the state was collapsing. The state really was fragile and was in a state of collapse. They were saying, the government was saying often, we cannot afford to do this. You have to find a way of doing it yourselves. And it was the mass organizations that, under instructions rallied locally. And by locally, I mean a little barrio, at the barrio level. They started to restructure the state from the grassroots. And that guaranteed the supply systems. Rather than individual survival, which is the way it's often described, 
And that did happen to some extent as dollars flowed in from families abroad, but it was actually a collective survival at the local barrio level. That was one crucial one. Another one was the, another factor was the uh, decision to protect what they called the logros sociales, the social achievements, particularly focusing on health and education, the uh, watchwords of the logros sociales. But there are two other factors. One is that they took a decision and kept to it to pay unemployment benefit of 60% of salaries to the people who were laid off as a result of the shortages and the shutdown of factories. The other was the use of the ration card. That never gets a look in in explanations of what was going on. But rationing came back on a scale which had not been seen for some time. And that was one of the, if you like, secret weapons to save public loyalty, public support. So although it looked as though it was a system that was still using rationing, actually it used it even more, and that was pretty vital. There's also beyond that a residual loyalty. There were enough older Cubans and enough middle-aged Cubans, including those who'd gone to the Soviet Union to study, who had a degree of loyalty to the values of the system. And one of the things that's interesting for me is that those values of solidarity, of commitment, of working together, were increasingly shared by most of Cuba's churches, including the Catholic Church. Catholic Church, for a while, thought it would play a role like the Catholic Church in Poland in the 1980s, namely leading opposition to a system that was about to collapse. Actually, what happened to the Catholic Church in Cuba was that they were frightened by the threat of disunity and disintegration, social disintegration. So all of them came into some sort of understanding with the Communist Party and the Cuban leadership that the important thing was to prevent social disintegration. So it was not just the communist system that was saying solidarity and working together. Actually, it was even the churches that were saying the same thing. So there was a consensus. Pope John Paul II made a high-profile trip to Cuba in 1998. More recently, Pope Francis, the first Latin American Pope, was a guest of Raul Castro in Havana, as CBS News reported. The theme of his trip to Cuba is Missionary of Mercy. In his arrival speech, Pope Francis hailed the new relations between Cuba and the U.S. as a sign of the victory of the culture of encounter and dialogue. He called on political leaders to persevere in this path, as in his words, an example of reconciliation for the whole world. And in a direct reference to religion in Cuba, Francis asked his welcoming committee to give the church the freedom, the means, and the space it needed to bring its message to what he called the existential peripheries of society. A primary aim of the Pope's visit here is to give encouragement and hope to Cuban Christians. But a senior Vatican official with intimate knowledge of the trip noted that references to the need for change will be veiled, not least because the Vatican believes that it can make more progress with the Cuban government by being non-confrontational, at least in public. However, the private exchanges between Pope Francis and Cuban leader Raul Castro, who are no strangers to each other, are expected to be more pointed, especially on the issues of greater freedom and human rights. And of course, finally, but by no means least, U.S. policies played a very, very significant role. 
Remember that the United States' response to the collapse was not to do what they did in Vietnam, which is start building bridges. They did precisely the opposite. 1992, the embargo was tightened, and in 1996, with the Helms-Burton Act, tightened even further. That played into the hands of the inherent nationalism in Cuba, and more that they emphasized nation and patria as part of the new approach, the deeper that nationalism, and the more that the United States policies became counterproductive, because most Cubans now feared disunity and disintegration rather than demanding the end of the system. So I've always argued that in the past that if you really wanted as an American president to destabilize the Cuban system, get rid of the embargo or promise to get rid of the embargo, which, of course, to some extent is what Obama did. But most of the U.S. presidents have done precisely the opposite and tightened or at least continued the embargo. And that gives the system an alibi. It gives the leadership an alibi in Cuba and an alibi which today, for example, is very clearly true as well. But it also does play into nationalism, which is in there in pretty much most Cubans. When Raul Castro took over from his brother as president and his first secretary, was there more continuity than change in his approach or vice versa? Uh, I'm going to do a nice academic answer there. I'm saying it's a bit of both. It's the continuity of the project, but by different means. Uh, it comes back to the differences between Raul and Fidel earlier on. It's interesting to me that in 2008, when Raul was elected, already promising reform, he was annoyed by the accusations that he was going to be a Cuba's Gorbachev and said quite clearly, look, I haven't been elected. And your quote was, in order to destroy the revolution, I'm going to save it, but save it by the correct means, which was to update, actualizar is the term he used, update socialism, that it's no good to talk about the socialism of the 1960s because that's no longer possible. What you have to do is update it for the 2000s and to find something that is feasible and doable. And he now began to stress not communism, but socialism. He even talked about Cuba being in transition to socialism rather than socialist already. So there was a significant shift there. And what he did was nothing drastically new. He extended the reforms that he had very largely driven in the 1990s and extended them. Very little that was new. He simply increased the scale of self-employment, increased the scale of uh, the destatization of the economy, but nothing new. He was not he was moving in a cooperative direction rather than a private direction, with the exception of foreign capital. But foreign capital was still limited to 49% of enterprises. So he did that, and he did it quite slowly. And that, the slow pace annoyed some, certainly the younger generations, but actually helped the ones, the older generation of Cubans, who were increasingly worried that Reform might be necessary, but would it end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Um, he recognized that and therefore decided to negotiate his way through the process. Reforms could have happened earlier if he'd insisted, but that would have destabilized a lot. So by moving quite slowly but steadily, he managed to achieve quite a lot of the reforms that he promised. 
he did have opposition from the party. The party was not until he was elected first secretary under his control. And the party was, to some extent, at least elements in the party, were certainly opposing the reforms with some popular support. That annoyed him and led him to reform the party quite considerably, to return it to what he, what of course is called the guiding role rather than what he called the interfering role. He did that very slowly and steadily, but by in particular restructuring the provincial parties and bringing in younger leaders who were more reliable, more efficient and effective than just simply political appointments. He also cleared out the old generation or started the process of clearing out the older generation which he saw as no longer speaking the same language as most Cubans. He kept a lot of them going because he had to, because he wanted to partly through trust, through loyalty, and also because he recognized that they had a voice in the system. But he did create a younger party and a younger government as a result. But he continued to share the same project that he and Fidel had way back in the 60s, As I said, the only thing that was going to change was his willingness to do reform and the ways in which he was going to do it. He was helped, of course, by events in the United States. The election of Obama made an enormous difference because it enabled him to deliver some goods. He couldn't change the embargo, of course. The embargo was still there and nothing was going to change that. But he could nonetheless create a different mood in Cuba as a result of recognition and as a result of a little bit greater contact with the United States. Raul Castro's retirement, which was long anticipated, of course, meant that the revolutionary generation had finally passed on the baton to a younger leadership team. What do you think the significance of that was and what do you think the future now holds for Cuba? It clearly is a very significant, symbolically significant moment because Díaz-Canel is the first president, clearly, of the two they've had, three they've had uh, so far since 1959. The first one to not have participated in the revolution, in the rebellion. And that, I think, is significant because that means that whatever historical legitimacy both Fidel and Raúl enjoyed, and they did enjoy considerable legitimacy, he hasn't got it. He has to earn his legitimacy from other sources, namely delivering goods, delivering change, and keeping the system going in some form or other. But the interesting thing is that what he tried to do by those reforms was particularly focused on two things. One was taking up Raoul's promise to end the dual currency, the currency of having a convertible peso, which is equivalent to the dollar and based on the dollar, and a Cuban peso, national currency it's called, that was introduced as an emergency measure in the early 1990s, but had become the system. And it was highly divisive. The inequalities that emerged in Cuba in the 1990s, 2000s, were partly the result of the fact that not everybody had access to hard currency, not least remittances. Most of those remittances were going to the white population because most of the emigrant population were white. And so it was clearly divisive, it was clearly corrosive, and it was leading to a degree of corruption, very local corruption as well. 
So no, everybody wanted to end that, that dual currency system, but no one quite knew when and how. Well, COVID provided the opportunity, actually, because in January, to everybody's surprise, Diaz-Canel did precisely that. Warned them very briefly, because you couldn't actually warn them too early, because there would be money flight of some sort. And he did so very quickly, very effectively, but at cost, because any fusion of the currency, depending at the rate at which it was fused, was going to have losers as well as winners. Most typically, those who had hard currency were much more likely to suffer because the uh, convertible peso was overvalued and the Cuban peso undervalued. The Cuban peso, actually, you could get more for your Cuban peso before the change than you could for the convertible peso. So he did that. That is contributing, actually, to the current protests because many people who hoarded the savings, the remittance savings, actually now see that they have got less value than they did. So that's clearly a problem. But the other uh, um, reform he uh, wanted to commit himself to was writing a new constitution, which again, Raul had promised, but not quite delivered on. But it was interesting that Diaz-Canel gave Raul the role of leading the discussions on the constitution, which looked very similar to the old constitution of 1976 when it came out, 2019. But there certainly the discourse was different, showing shift back to patria, back to nación. And also some one or two elements were in there that, not significantly, but sending some sort of message, were indicating a future shift towards perhaps a different kind of constitutional structure. We can't yet predict what that's going to be because that, that depends on eternal debates. But Certainly, Diaz-Canel was saying to most Cubans, look, I've got your interests at heart. I'm willing to do this very bold step at cost. And the constitution is not over. We will go on discussing future beyond that. His great misfortune as he came to power, coinciding with Trump, who tightened the embargo more than any US president had done since the 60s, 240 measures is the count that's normally given. That actually amounts to, I think, a measure and a half every month or something like that to tighten it. And that has had a real effect, very, very considerable effect on supplies, on the ability to buy abroad and so on, and even to operate, incidentally, financially. So that's one coincidence. And the other, of course, is COVID, because COVID closed the borders. And that immediately destroyed, at least for the moment, seriously damaged the basis of Cuba's economy, which is tourism. That is not the best context for a new president, not from the historic generation, to come into power. So far, he's coping. But you can see that the future depends very, very largely on how successful that currency fusion is, If Biden does actually reverse any of the measures that Trump put into effect, which he doesn't show any signs of doing at the moment, his language is actually not unlike Trump's language sometimes. So the US, as ever, does hold the key to what happens in Cuba and a recovery of tourism. Now, that might, of course, happen after, whenever there is an after COVID, but most of those are out of Cuba's hands. So that really means that it's rather tricky 
One of the interesting things, incidentally, about the current protests, which gives us something of a clue, is that when there was a violent protest in 1980 and in 1994, that was immediately followed by a mass emigration that was tolerated and even encouraged. That's not possible now. The reason it's not possible is not because the Cubans stop people leaving. They don't. They, that was one thing that changed under Raul, was abolishing that need for what was called an exit visa. But what's happened is the United States has effectively closed the door to the Cubans. Before it was an open door to Cuba more than anybody else, quite uniquely often, that is now closed. You cannot now, for example, get an, uh, a visa to enter the United States from the U.S. Embassy in Havana because it is closed, effectively. You have to go outside Cuba, if you can afford it, to go and get an uh, entry visa elsewhere. And even then, it's not automatic. So that means that that safety valve in 1980, 1994 doesn't now exist. So hence, the scale of protest perhaps is partly fueled by frustration that doesn't see a way out. That doesn't answer your question, what happens next, but it clearly is going to be the younger generation. Very few of the older generation are left in positions of power. So it does depend very much on what happens in the United States and what happens with COVID. Some recovery might well happen soon, and they are coping pretty much at the moment. They're certainly coping with COVID, however much they fear they're not. If you compare their statistics to, for example, the British statistics of death rates and infection rates, we would love to have the Cubans' version of that. Cuba, however, doesn't have the wherewithal to cope with it, and that's the problem. Many thanks to Anthony Capcha for that account of Cuban history since the revolution. You can also read his article for Jacobin about the legacy of Raul Castro that we published earlier this year.